Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to Higher Learning. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. And today I have a very special guest, Amelia Sordell, founder at Clout, the personal branding agency. How are you today, Amelia? I'm amazing. Thank you very much for having me, Oz. Of course. I appreciate you taking some time. I know you're based in the UK. What time is it over there? It is quarter past five or coming up to quarter past five. Wow. So you're spending dinner time with me. I really appreciate that. I want to ask you first off, I don't see CEO or president in your title. Is that intentional? Yeah, because I don't have a board. <laughs> I, I have say, um, I've got like a real ick moment when I see all these like baby founders all over LinkedIn who are like, I'm the CEO of this business. I'm like, First of all, you don't have any employees. And second of all, where's your board? Because to be a chief exec, you need to be a chief executive of something, right? Yeah, um, yeah that's why I'm just founder because I don't have a board. <laughs> I love that. So if you have a board, then you will immediately put that title or is there any type of revenue threshold or? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to be a CEO. I think I maybe need to hire someone and become a mentor or mentee even, but we'll jump. I'm more of a branding person. Like I'm, I would love to be like the CMO, but like the chair. So that's like what the, the thought of sitting over Excel spreadsheets and crunching numbers all day fills my brain with mush. So yeah. maybe I'm not cut out to be the CEO. I don't know, but it's a bridge I will cross when we get that to that point. I'll, I'll keep my eye open. I want to ask you, tell us a little bit about clout. What does clout do? So Clout is a personal branding agency. We build the personal brands of founders, entrepreneurs, and senior leaders. And what a personal brand is essentially is putting like a strategy behind your reputation. It's how can we get your personality out in the world, in the ether to make people want to do business with you. It's basically leveraging your personality to gain a competitive business advantage. And we do that through social media content. So we manage our clients' social media pages for them, the individual pages, not the company pages, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, sometimes medium articles. We also do PR. We do talent management. So we get people on stages that they need to be on and in front of the people really that they need to be getting in front of in order to make more money. Amelia. You have really great experience. One of the reasons that you and I hit off when we first started talking was that you had worked in the talent and recruitment space before founding Clout. So I wanted to start there. Let's, let me get an idea. You started in PR and events before joining Finlay James. Tell me why you decided to take your career into that talent direction at the time. Yeah, I wish I could say it was because I was really smart and I thought I could be, do really well in that industry. The fact of the matter is that's not what happened. <laughs> I think most people that work in recruitment or get into headhunting have fallen into it in some way. They've not set out with like grandioso dreams of wanting to become a headhunter. When I was 21, I left university with a PR degree. I actually did quite a few internships in PR and then decided the PR was not for me, which is ironic because that's basically what I do now. But I left university and was like, I don't want to do that. So what can I do instead? So I ended up getting a job in an events company selling events. So I used to work with like really large banks, like Fortune 100 companies. And we do their massive summer and Christmas offsite. So like really 100,000 people events, like really big things. And I was really good at it actually and really enjoyed it. But I got like, what, 12 months in and 
decided that I hated working for other people, I am Oz, the most unemployable person you'll ever meet. Like I am not a good employee whatsoever. I hate being told what to do. I don't like doing stuff how everyone else wants it done. Like I want to just, you just give me a wage and I'll figure it out. That's my ideal situation. You you definitely have some strong opinions and you don't like to be held in a box. I can say that for sure. Yeah, I'm not a fan. So you can imagine that went down like a shit sandwich with my employer when I was like 21, right? Like this cocky (laughs) little 21 year old who doesn't want to do anything, but still makes money. So we can't buy her. Sure. So I figured out that actually I didn't want to work for someone else. I wanted to work for myself, which was not a new concept to me. I'd had side hustles since I was about 10, doing random things. I had an eBay business, I had a baking business, like all these little things. So like working for myself was not a new concept. And I didn't know what that was. Like, what was I going to do? Because what skills can I sell? What's the sure. thing that I can sell? And as a 21 year old girl, I was like, what do I like? Clothes. Okay, so I'll start a clothing brand. And so I started a clothing brand. And in the first year, it was really successful. And I sold it into multiple boutiques online and offline internationally. ASOS wanted to stock our stuff, which is obviously a huge e-commerce business. I think one of the largest retail, like kind of retail e-commerce businesses in the world. Wow. And year two, I lost everything. Like when I mean everything, like literally the whole business gone, relationship gone, house gone, car gone, everything. And we can dig into why that failed. But ultimately it's because I thought I knew everything and actually I knew nothing. It was my hubris in an arrogance and thinking that I could just figure it out that led to the ultimate demise of that business. And also because I didn't actually believe in it. I just wanted to work for myself. Whereas clout, I'm like, this is my purpose. Like I found my purpose now, whereas that wasn't my purpose. And so to back back to your earlier question of like, how did I get into recruiting and hiring? When that business failed, I had about three months of feeling bad about myself and crying and drinking and smoking and doing all the things that you do when you're grieving for something. And then I gave myself a slap around the face and was like, I need to make some money. <laughs> I can't live with my parents for the rest of my life with my little tiny dog and 26p in my account and not being able to drive a car because I can't afford to buy one. So mm-hmm. I went on Google and I typed in, what is the what are the jobs that you can do that pay you the most money with no experience? Question mark. Boom. And all Recruiting the search came results, num- <laughs> yeah, all wow. the search results said recruiter. And I was like, okay, I'll be a recruiter. Let's do that. And so I systematically then applied for all the recruitment companies that recruited into industries that I was interested in. So tech, ad tech, martech, like digital, generally marketing, like all the things that I thought I could add value to. I applied for those kind of roles and eventually got an offer at Finlay James and took it. And that's how I got into recruiting. (laughs) I wish it was more sexy than that, but it's not. I just needed to make some money. (laughs) I love that journey. I love that you went through that process. Is there anything in particular that you don't miss whatsoever about the industry and maybe something that you do miss? What do I not miss about the industry? I don't miss that everyone does everything the same way. I really don't miss that. I just think, I think part of the reasons why I was really good at recruiting and also part of the reasons why I disliked it so much is like, I did not do what everyone else did. Like I used to market, and that's how I got into personal branding. I used to market myself as a recruiter to potential prospects as opposed to me cold calling them because I'm a lazy person, right? So the prospect of making a hundred calls a day to reach maybe one CEO. I was like, why would I do that? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Not very and efficient. so I started posting content and sending emails and running like really targeted email campaigns is all that I can explain it as. Started making a lot of money doing it. And so very quickly, the company I was working for was like, how is this chick making three calls a day and making all this money and realized that it was because I was marketing myself and then rehired me to do their marketing for them instead. But what I don't miss is that everyone does everything the same. And what I do miss is like, the is the people. Like I'm such a people, I think a lot of people get into recruiting like I did because I wanted to make money. But what makes them stay is like the people piece and watching someone's career progress and amazing, amazing kind of 
poignant piece of this is my EA now is someone that I approached as a candidate in 2014. And so I've kept that relationship with her for near gone eight years, right? And now she's my EA. And it's like, I just love that journey that I've been on with people in my network, watching them flourish and then messaging me being like, oh my God, you placed me a global web index in 2015. Look at you now. And yeah, it's the people piece. That's what I love the most. And probably why I love I, the agency the most is the people. Yeah, piece. and listen, I got the impact is what really stood out to me. When I first got involved like you, I was trying to make money. And then after a couple of years of doing it, I would have people reach out to me. I had... One candidate say, hey, you relocated me to me and my family to Dallas for this job. There's a much bigger Indian community out here. Or I had somebody tell me, hey, I got a $30,000 raise because of the help you got me in this new role. And I was able to send my son to private school. I had another person say, hey, listen, you and I were working together, but you actually told me that instead of pursuing the role with you, I should go ask for a promotion at my current company. I've been promoted twice since. And so it was then I started to realize that the impact you can have by doing this right really changes people's lives, right? Work is important. I think work is important. And if you're doing it right, hopefully there's only four or five, six times in your life that you're changing careers. But at the end of the day, that changes everything for you. Compensation, commute, all that good stuff. And so I just, I feel like that's one of the biggest problems in the industry is that people don't take it seriously enough. They don't, they treat it as transactional and not realize that, wow, you're really making an impact on people's lives. It's not like an electrician. It's not like a plumber. You remember the people that helped you. And to your point, your EA, you've been with her for how long now? And it's because you've reached out to her because of that recruitment job. So I just think that's such a great tie in there. Yeah, it's 100% that. It's 100% the impact. And I do agree with you. I think a lot of recruiters treat this as a sales job and not as a people job. This is a people job. <laughs> you are, 100%. it's matchmaking, basically. You can't, like matchmaking wouldn't work if it was treated like a sales transaction. So. Totally agree with you. So I want to ask you about the name Clout because the first time I heard it, I said, oh, that's amazing. Clout with a K. Was there any story behind how that came up? Did you outsource that? Was that something you always known you would wanted to call it? No, I wish again, I wish I could be like, I'm so smart. I just came up with this name. <laughs> I did not. I registered the business under a completely different name. And then two weeks later, I was like, I fucking hate it. <laughs> so I was like, I need to change the name of the business. And so I went back and forth with my friend for three days. And I was like, what about this? What about that? What about that? And then clout, like K-L-O-U-T. I was like, clout. Okay. Like, I was like, clout. That's a good, that's a great name. Yeah. I was like, oh God, that's not, that's registered. I can't use that. And so I was drifting on how can I spell clout basically where the domain is free. <laughs> I can buy it. Necessity is the mother of invention. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Is there anybody that you can think of from a personal branding perspective that just kills it? Like somebody that maybe you've admired from afar or- Ooh, I'd love to work with them on their personal branding. Anybody that really stands out to you? There's probably two people that I think do this really well. One would be Chris Walker, and he's the founder of a demand gen agency called Refinery Labs, I think, or Fine Labs. Yeah, I'm familiar um, with them. Yeah, so he does the opposite to what most people do with personal branding and also does the whole thing that we try and do for our clients. Our whole thing is we need to say things for our clients that only our clients could say. So for us, it's not about the likes and the kind of the generic screen grabs of shit that you found on Instagram and going viral. That's not what I care about. I care about thought leadership and being a, an authority in said thing. And I think Chris has done an incredible job of blowing up this idea that you need to be like viral and whatever in order to be impactful. Like his content is really meaty. Like they're basically blogs every single time he posts. They're huge, huge things. 
accompanied with a video. And they're very specific. They're about scaling marketing teams and like how you can automate stuff and how you can create demand, like how you can build out a demand gen system and like super niche that only a small number of people in the world will actually give a shit about. But he has like a hundred thousand people following him and a thousand likes every single time he posts. So I think he he is encompassed building using his personality and his knowledge to build a competitive advantage in business. Like I think he's a great example. I also think yeah. One thing that, I'll point out with him because I. I Somebody brought up Chris Walker to me in the past and I looked up Refined Labs and I looked at their followers and I was like, it's not that impressive. I, I wasn't sure. And then I realized his personal following. And then I looked at all the different employees and their personal followings. So that really shifted my paradigm to your point around not looking at the traditional ways of engagement, but looking in a different way. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You had one other No, not at all. I think that, look, marketing is psychology, right? So it makes sense that the leader of an agency is out there influencing people. Like that is what we do in marketing of any description, whether it's social or B2B or doing bloody white papers. Like the whole thing is the psychology of influencing someone into believing that you can solve their pain, help them reach their dreams, sell them the lifestyle that they desire, like it's the same as recruiting, right? Like sure. the way you position a role is not like this is a job that you can do. It's a, this is a job that you can do that's going to pay you X amount of money. So you can buy that house that you've always wanted to buy. So you can drive that Tesla that you've always wanted to drive. So you can send your kid to private school. We're not selling stuff. We're selling lifestyle lifestyles and painkillers and dreams basically. And so it makes sense that the leader of an agency that does that for businesses is as popular, if not more popular than the company itself. And just lastly, I think someone who also does this really well is Justin Welsh. Again, obvious example. He's huge on LinkedIn. But the reason why I said him as an example is not because he's huge on LinkedIn, because he's a solopreneur. Mm. And he's the perfect example of you don't need a massive team to scale a business. You just need a strong personal brand and a really good understanding of what your audience wants to know about and then systemize your knowledge to share that to them. So those two people I would definitely... And also so different, my God, like the way they present is so different. So go and check them out. Yeah. Personal branding is not a new thing, but I think the focus on doing it for companies and having that personal brand, because we've always talked about how people buy you. That's been something that people have been saying for decades. And now we're starting to see the outsized emphasis on that and what the return on that can be. So I think those are two great call outs. I follow both of them. So I really appreciate that. I do want to get into the meat of why we're here. We want to talk about hiring. You built a company, right? You were in recruiting. You've worked in many different places. Fair to say that you've been involved with hundreds of hires throughout your career? Probably, yeah. Okay, cool. So let's talk, let's start here. Let's say for clout, when you're hiring, do you have an overall kind of interviewing or hiring philosophy? My philosophy with everything is that it needs to be mutually beneficial. So our hiring process is very much split 50-50 between the candidate and us. So Yes, of course, we do the screening, the skills, the can you do the job? Do you meet our values? Tick, tick, all the stuff that we would do in hiring. But we also allocate 50% of the hiring process to the candidate interviewing us as an mm. employer. And that's really game changing for us because first of all, the candidate feels heard, which normally all they get to ask questions is, do you have any questions for me? Like 10 minutes before the end of the interview, it's not helpful to anyone. But we tell them, ask us anything. There is nothing off limits. And as an employer, that gives me such an insight into how curious they are. And I'm sorry, but if you're not curious and you want to work in a creative industry, you're going to really struggle. And so it gives us selfishly a really good insight into how they operate as people. Like what questions do they want to ask me to make a decision? And if you're not asking me questions outside of what's your culture like, like when are you in the office? That tells me that you're not very good at gathering data to make a good decision, which means that I probably don't want to hire you. 
So it's a really great way for everyone to win. It's mutually beneficial. So yeah, I think that's my philosophy is make sure it's mutually beneficial. That's really incredible. I love that. How does that manifest itself in the actual interview process? Do you just set the table at the beginning and say, this is a 50-50 conversation? Or is there anything like systematic or a framework that you have in the interview process that gives them that ability to go back and forth? Yeah, so it's quite systemized. So the initial stage is a screen like telephone screen, let's just make sure we're on the same page. Do you even want to do this? Do we even want to hire you? Would we even be interested in you? Like the standard stuff. The first kind of face-to-face, the second stage interview is very much about skills. So we ask them questions around our values and the kind of basic skills that we'd expect for this role. And they normally present back to us a task. So we're hiring for a sales role at the minute. So that person's going to be presenting a hobby or something they're really passionate about back to us. Because in my opinion, there's no point in asking them to present clout because they don't even know clout. I know clout. So obviously I'm going to think they're going to do a shit job because it's my business and they've never even heard of the business before. You know what <laughs> That'd I mean? be a tough ask. So that's for sure. It's not to make people present back your business. Right. Give them something they love and they enjoy. Present back your, sell me your child. Sell me a car. Sell me the house you want to buy. Whatever it is. Sell me your hobby. Sell me soccer. But sell me something that you're passionate and you're knowledgeable about. So that's the second stage is the test both ways. And then the final stage, which is where we split it, is 50% of the interview process is them interviewing us. That's really structured. We They know that going into that interview, that's what is required of them. And then the other 50% is us asking them questions more, more into the behaviors of what we would expect for this role. Hypothetically, salesperson, we've used that example. I would expect a salesperson to be goal-orientated, money-motivated, a real out-and-out hunter, a good relationship builder, someone who can act with pace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are, we would ask questions to that person around those behaviors once they've asked us their questions as well. But it is really telling because I did an interview this week or last week, actually. And this person know, you know, knew full well was part of our process. And when I asked them, I was like, oh, do you have any questions for me? They were like, no, I don't have any questions. And I was like, okay, this isn't going to go very far. <laughs> like, did you say you that in the, the moment? Final stage and you have 30 minutes to ask questions. You have not a single one. <laughs> okay. Did you say that in the moment or did you give them the feedback later? No, I told them not in the moment, but like further down the interview, I was like, I was really surprised you didn't want to ask any questions. Did we give you all the information that you needed? And they were like, oh, and I just think they hadn't prepared. So I love that. I am going to write that down. I am going to use that. I think everybody should listen on that. Have the can. We talk about candidate experience a lot. What's better than having the giving the candidate the agency to interview you? Because you're right. It's about mutual relationships. So I think that's awesome. One of the other things that I've noticed in terms of your social presence of your company at MSH is that a big, maybe unintended factor, maybe intentional factor is how people get a sense of what it's like to work at your company through those posts. Is that intentional for you? Or do you, I mean, we get a lot of comments about people saying, I want to do some research on your company, started seeing some of the things that you're posting about seems like a great place to work. And that's why we came here. Is that same thing happening for you in cloud? And is that intentional part of the strategy? Absolutely. So my strategy with my personal brand and also building the culture of personal branding within the business is a we're a personal branding agency so no one's going to trust us to build their personal brand if we're not building ours that's nope. the number one credibility sure the second thing is it drives inbound leads people buy from people my team have got 500 times more reach on their individual profiles on my company page ever would although we invest heavily in the company brand and company socials and company marketing i also invest heavily in the personal branding because i think you need both and then the third thing is employer branding it's a real struggle to hire good people not because it's a struggle to hire people like this, this whole thing of there's a war on talent. I'm like, there is always a war on talent because if it was a job you needed doing, it wouldn't matter who did it. You'd be able to find someone who fit your budget. You'd be able to find someone who did the skills and you'd be able to find someone who met your values. But the struggle is trying to find someone who can do all three 
is damn impossible. And it doesn't matter when you're hiring, it could have been 1952 or 2035, you're still going to have the same freaking problem. So um, there's always that element to it. It's like, how can we position, how can we peer people behind the curtain of clout? Because obviously I'm biased, right? I think I've built this incredible culture because it's mine. But my team talk about it as well. They're like, that is what makes this special. I'm friends with my employees and you actually give a shit about me. And like, so it's almost using the personal brands of the employees to get that message out there so that we are ready to hire. We have a pipeline of people and it's worked, right? Like we've hired people. The last couple of people we've hired have come through that network have come through oh i saw megan post this and oh i saw such and such post that and actually ironically the not ironically but the third highest search involving me and clout is clout jobs so it's like amelia Mm. sordell and then it's like clout agency and then it's clout jobs nothing else so i think that is synonymous with the fact that my team is so good at presenting clout as a great employer and we do that basically by just asking them to post once a week about the business and like why they like it and shout out their colleagues and talk about things we're doing and they like that because then it gives a strategy for them to post content and one less post that they have to worry about each week yeah you're preaching to the choir here our leadership styles are, are very similar i think somebody said that i'm you're the female version of me or i'm the male yeah, version what of if me. I can't remember, but... that. like, yeah it's just like a female version of us <laughs> I like, yeah, yeah I, I love that it's so important and one of the things that's tough is and i don't know if you've struggled with this too but being a friend doesn't mean that you can't hold people accountable. Doesn't mean that you can't be a great leader. And that's something that I think a lot of people, either one way or the other, they mix up. And to me, at least with my direct reports, knowing about their personal lives, what's going on in their personal lives, their families, their struggles, their motivations, makes me a better manager and leader. And for so long, I think people wanted to decouple that and say, listen, I'm going to stay away from that. And I think that makes you a less effective leader. And you also have to be able to adapt your style based on people's preferences, the way they receive validation, the way they receive coaching, all that good stuff. So I think it's really smart on your part to have that. And to to that point, I've seen you post before about work is not a family, right? So can you give me a little bit? Can you expand on that? Yeah, so to your point, yeah, let's be friends because we all know we collaborate better and we're more creative and we're more innovative and we do better work when we enjoy who we're working with, right? That's a fact. We know that to be fact. However, I find this concept of we're a family like really toxic because normally when people say a company is a family, they're not like they're the total opposite of that it's it's almost like a cover-up yeah Yeah, it's like a mask that companies wear when they haven't actually worked on their culture properly and there's probably a couple of people kicking around who've been there since it was founded maybe their family because when things go wrong they shut down ranks and protect each other but everyone else is on the outskirts and i also think this idea of where a family brings people into this sort of false sense of security because families aren't remunerated based on their performance or fired because they don't meet it or pulled up on stuff because something went wrong and they need to learn from that mistake Families are unconditional for the most part. Employment is conditional on everyone pulling their weight, whether it be the employer, because the the candidate might leave, or the candidate, the employer might fire you. That's a conditional contract. Your family is not a conditional contract, it's an unconditional contract. So telling people we're part of a family kind of creates this sort of false sense of, oh, we're a family, so we look after each other. Sorry, if you keep fucking up, we're not going to look after you. It's just sure. like how this works, right? Yeah. Um, I so think I people really don't like this concept. I'm with you. I think people mistake family for community, that sense of belonging. Yeah. But I stopped using the well, word family many years build ago. Build a community. Build for a sure. community for sure. Because you need people to feel like they can be themselves at work. But family, 
No, I've replaced it with high performing team because to your point, there is a production that comes with being part of this high performing team and you don't want it to be so caustic and have it be a situation where you think you're being replaced at every minute, but you do want it to be a situation where your performance does impact your ability to be part of this community. So I think it's a good call out by you and a smart one. Let me ask you about a memorable interviewing experience. And when I ask you that, it could be your interviewing, could be you interviewing somebody. What comes to mind when I ask? I was going to tell you about a story about when I interviewed someone. It was like the wildest interview I've ever had. But actually, I'm going to tell you when I was a candidate. I think this is interesting. So when I was doing my whole recruiting thing and I was that and first, well, where can I make the most money with no experience? And recruiter came up. I applied for all these roles. And uh, I got through to the second, third stage of most of them. I had quite a few offers on the table. Like clearly I was a salesperson, recruitment people were salespeople. It was like a kind of an easy win. Sure. But I had one final stage interview with this guy. He was the CEO of the company and managing director of the company. And he, the person, so my ex-husband for context played soccer to quite a high level, relatively well-known in certain circles, like whatever. And this person knew for whatever reason that I was dating at the time, obviously consequently married, now divorced, but dating this person. And he said to me at the end of the interview, he was like, so why do you want to work? And I was like, sorry, what? And he was like, why do you want to work? He was like, your boyfriend is a Premier League footballer. Why do you want to work? And I was like, I was so stunned. Like I was only like 24, 23. I was so stunned at the audacity that this 50 year old bloke had and asking me that I looked at him like I was waiting for him to laugh almost like as if he just ignored everything I just said. Like, I set a business up by myself. I went and got funding by myself. I, like, do you know what I mean? It's just like, what? So that was like, I just remember thinking, wow, like this is going to be my life now. I'm in a male dominated industry. These people are not going to take me seriously. So I'm going to have to work like 10 times harder probably to get the same t- recognition as these people get for doing the same thing and yeah it was I also had a mental whether it was conscious or not I made a mental note of like how that made me feel in interview and literally again consciously or not vowed never to do that to anyone um and actually it's it's helped form a lot of our hiring process and a lot of my management processes like I haven't had many experiences like negatively as a woman in business like I know people have had different and maybe it's because I'm so confident I don't know but there's been one or two, and those have really shaped how I manage and lead. What misogyny to be able to ask that and yeah. expect an answer. That's terrible. I was um, so shocked, Oz. I was like, I was waiting for him to be like, joking. And I was like, the joke uh, never came. Like, was so you didn't, take, you didn't take that job. That wasn't happening. No. Like, I was like, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. It was the bizarre. It, the worst part about it is looking back in hindsight, I'm like, if someone asked me that now, I would have the perfect answer. I'd be like, well, why let's hear it. What's the perfect answer? No, I just like, well, why do you work? And they'd be like, oh, to make money. And I'd be like, so your wife makes more than you? Do you like, why, do you, why don't you work? What does your wife do for a living? Do you know what I mean? I, I love um, that. But um, yeah, I just, at the time, I didn't really know how to respond. I was just so shocked and so, whoa, like this, is this what this industry is like? Which turns out it was like that, but I was able to navigate it pretty well. I learned quite quickly how to handle myself and have difficult conversations. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. 
Wow. I- I'm not going to let you tease the wild experience of somebody you interviewed, though. So you got to give us that story, too. Drop it off. Yeah, you said that you, I mean, you had, had a wild story. Wild. It wasn't that wild, probably, for anyone listening. But I think I said earlier, we give people a task to do. And we were hiring for a video editor at the time. We've now got two. But we were hiring for a video editor at the time. And uh, we give them this task. We say, right, here's the long form footage. We want you to break this up into a TikTok, a, a YouTube short, and a whatever. And it's the same footage. So we measure everyone with the same benchmark. Everyone that we've ever interviewed ever to work in video at Clout does the same piece of footage. And uh, she didn't read the brief. The brief was so, so simple as well. It was like, take this long form content and turn it into using the footage. Add captions if you want. So simple. And idiot proof. She took the footage and she re- she found the bits that she liked. And then took the audio from it and then created TikToks herself of like reenacting oh, what man. I was saying. <laughs> Do you still have and this footage? <laughs> and then presented them back to us. And we were just like, and bless her, we had to sit there for 10 minutes. <laughs> just sitting through awkward silence. That had to be hilarious. So what did you say? What was your immediate follow-up? That was interesting. I was like, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Because obviously she put in so much effort. Like it was like full reenactment, like arms and props and stuff. And I said, did you read the brief? And she was like, yeah, it said to take the audio and make videos from it. And I was like, no, it was to cut down the video into my, and her face, oh my God, it's just like white. It was just mortified. Oh, I felt so bad for her. But yeah, to be fair to her, we gave her a second shot. We said, look, clearly you didn't read it. Go away, do it right, and then come back. And she wasn't good enough anyway, but I was just like, that is hilarious yeah it was insane but that just goes the devil's in the detail right read the brief (laughs) the devil is in the details if she's listening to this podcast you know who you are read the brief next time (laughs) read the brief next time do you have a favorite question you ask of prospective hires do i have a favorite question that i ask prospective hires yeah i my favorite question to ask them is teach me about a hobby if i say i was an alien hypothetically or i'm a six-year-old i know nothing about nothing Teach me about your hobby. Explain it to me. Okay. And, and what are you looking really, for out of the answer? It's a really interesting question to ask because most people go, so like with football, you have beers and you go out and they get into all the things that they enjoy about the hobby, but they never tell, they never explain the hobby. Mm. Right. And what I'm looking for is like, how can you explain something in its simplest form to someone who has no idea what you're talking about? Mm. And that is what we do at Cloud. We take really smart ideas from people like you was and entrepreneurs who are super super smart and make them like present them in dumb words so that Mm. everyone can understand them that's what i'm looking for out of that answer and the people that we've hired answer with things like hockey there's two things on either side of a x by x piece of grass grass by the way is green things that grow out of the ground like really systematic right and the best answer I ever had was pretty much that. And that what I just spoke there about from our video editor, Sam. He was like, hockey is you have this round white thing that you hit with things that are shaped like this. And there are two holes on either side of, of this triangle, of this rectangular shape. And you've got to get the ball in the hole. <laughs> that's like, that's the perfect answer. The most intelligent people I know can take the most complex subjects and yeah. dumb it down at a five-year-old level, right? And really be yeah. able to simplify it. Anyone who's interviewing with clout, if you're going to get asked that question, break it down. Make sure you know what you're doing there. I want to ask you about just a tip, period, like copywriting tips. Say it again. No one, just as a copywriting tip, everyone can improve their copywriting in every aspect. Go and spend time yep. on Twitter. Because if you have to execute an idea in 240 characters or less, trust me, you'll make it dumb in a yeah. good way. <laughs> yep, totally agree with you on that. 
in terms of candidate experience, do you guys do anything unique in terms of, I'm obviously the 50-50 in the interviewing, but is there anything else you do to give people a sense of what they'll be walking through, the people they'll be working with? And do you think candidate experience is important? Yeah, I think candidate experience is the most important thing. We do things a little differently. So before someone joins, we take them out for drinks with the whole team. Mm. So before they start, so they don't even know anyone yet. Let's be honest, first day is awkward for no reason, right? So we want to remove as much of the awkwardness as humanly possible before they start because then they can get up to speed quicker. So we take them out for drinks beforehand. They get to meet the team. They get to bond with the team. And then on their first day, we take them out to lunch, like wherever they want to go. Their team goes out for lunch and that's paid for by the business. And for the first week, they literally do nothing but meet everyone, have some training. Like it's a very easy onboarding. But the main purpose of that whole week is this one task we give them, which is, audit our entire business and then present your findings back to us on Friday. So if they start on Monday, they spend the whole five days interviewing people, finding out how things are done, like taking the training and being like, oh, that was a bit of a weird way to do this training. I would have thought of it like this. And we give them kind of a template. They can do whatever they want with it. But we're like, this is what other people have done. You can run with it. And every single time we hire someone, one, we learn so much from them with fresh eyes of what isn't working, what is working and what they think we should be doing more of and less of and all this kind of stuff. And it's just fabulous. But the second part of that is they've accomplished something quite large in their first week. And getting someone to have such a big project ticked off in week one has, is really powerful, I think, to onboarding them and making them feel like they're part of the business early doors. Because the first 90 days are the most important part. If someone's going to leave, they're going to know within the first 90 days whether or not they made the right decision. And so getting them on board with what we do and how we do things and feedback and guidance and and all the values that we have is really important. And so we built out this audit our business for the first five days and then present it back to us. Okay. So listen, I love that. I think that's fantastic. That fresh set of eyes, empowering people to be able to look at those things and be able to give feedback. Has anything super interesting like a big change that the company fundamentally changed come from one of those sessions every single time something changes so when sarah did hers she was like you need a project management tool so then we bought in monday she also was like why are you not working on the cloud so we did the drive situate this was like this was a very long time ago by the way we're a much more (laughs) intelligent business now but when she joined she was our first full-time employee right so she brought in all these systems and she was like you're doing this and she came from bigger agencies she brought our knowledge and that was amazing we've had someone else be like guys, you're not doing enough video. We need to be doing more videos. And I was like, great, that's great. So now we're doing the vlog. It's just so many things that have, there's always something, right? It's like, there's always something that comes out of those audits, whether it's like something super simple. Oh, I don't learn through reading. I learn through listening. So would you mind like maybe doing training during a podcast or instead of giving me a textbook, like whatever it might be, but we always learn something and we're constantly, and I feel like it's such a like cliche for a startup, but like we iterate constantly like every month there is something that has changed which is the the beautiful thing about being a small business still is we can do that because rolling out those changes is quite insignificant to 10 people versus 100 people but I don't ever want to lose that culture of change I don't ever want to lose that someone has identified something's not working let's just make sure that data is correct and then let's action it glad you said that because I want to have a little bit of an entrepreneurial fireside chat here I remember when we first started the business it was three partners and we were just starting to hire employees and start getting going and I remember thinking at the time wow, when we're a 1,000 or 5,000 people, I hope we can keep what makes us special, which is ludicrous when you're that early on in your business, quite audacious as well, thinking that you're even gonna get that far. But that's something that I've been thinking about for a very long time. And I'd like to think that we've done a pretty good job as we scale, but as we continue to grow, I do worry about the ability to do those things that make your culture what it is, make it a community that people wanna be a part of. 
I love the things that you brought up. Have you put a lot of thought into that? Is there anything that you do as you scale that will help keep some of those things special? And what do you think is kind of the secret behind that? Yeah, I think, look, I think first and foremost, we have to admit that as you scale a business, the culture is not going to be the same when you're a startup. Like it's, it just won't be because sure. you don't have the closed quarters, the intimate relationships. We have people in the office who are like have become best friends. You, you don't have that when there's a hundred people in the office. It just, sure. You'll be friends. Sure. But it just, it's not the same. Startup land is very different to scale up enterprise. And that's probably why a lot of startups never get past 20 heads because everyone who started with the business pre 20 heads are just like desperate to keep we can't change I don't want to change this I love it here so much and what we need to realize as leaders is yeah there are people that aren't going to change but the change is necessary in order to grow the business me walking over to Megan and giving her some feedback directly in the office is not going to work when we're 100 people and I'm not aware of the shit that's going on so yes change is inevitable the culture is not always going to be how it is now however you can create a new culture that is equally as special and equally as whimsical and equally as enticing for candidates and also good for retention by just making sure that as you grow you keep sense checking your values and they still align with where the business aspirationally wants to go and everyone is still being reminded of where we're going what's the north star why are you here why are you doing what you do? Why are we doing what we do? Why does a business make the decisions that it does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think culture is less about how many times you take people on holiday or to the pub and more about making people feel like they're part of something bigger. And mm -hmm. I think as long as you can continue to do that, it doesn't really matter how the culture kind of shifts and changes. Like we do as people, right? We grow and we evolve and I'm a completely different leader to who I was when I first started clout, like when I first started clout, I was like micromanaging fucking maniac. Now, maybe still a little bit, but not as much. <laughs> and I, but I think it's the same kind of premise, right? Like a business evolves and grows as a human evolves and grows. You know, I wasn't the same person as I was two years ago and clout won't be the same company as it is today in two years time. I'm so glad you said it. It's such a salient point. What got you here won't get you there. And you're so right. Many companies never get out of startup because of their founder, because it is a completely different skill set and knowledge base. And you have to keep evolving. You have to keep learning to be able to make that leap. And there's many successful stories of people who have done that, but there's 10 times more of people who couldn't make that change. And to your point, it's about that growth mindset. 90% of startups fail. Yeah, so. exactly. And that's why, because if you can't take it to that next, cross that next chase them, right? And take your company to that next level. And that's something I fight through and struggle with and have success with on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's one of the biggest things that I think about. I really appreciate your point there. I want to ask a little bit more about you. I want to get into a little more of your background. In terms of your job with Cloud as the founder, what is a day in your life like in terms of your role? <laughs> Firefighting, mentor, therapist <laughs> like, a little bit of micromanagement about? every now and then you know what i've got a really controversial opinion about micromanagement and maybe i should do a post on it because i think it will trigger a lot of people Let's go. when you have a young team and when you are doing something entirely new like what we're doing personal branding is, is in a, its infancy if you like as a marketing tactic it's always exists we, we've all had personal brands our entire lives right i've had a personal brand with my babe with my mom when i was a baby like probably that was a little shit. That's probably what my brand was. But we all have a personal brand, right? We all have a reputation. But the concept of using a strategy to form that reputation is a new concept, right? And I think we are at risk right now. And maybe I'm crazy as I'm a, I'm a millennial, right? So it's wild that I'm saying this, but we are at a risk right now of candidates, whether they're you know, fresh out of 
college or 18 years old, 90 years old, whatever it might be, being like, I deserve autonomy. I deserve to work from home. I deserve this. I deserve that. Yes, you do. But only if you can do all of those things functionally and productively. And when you first join the workforce, you can't do those things productively because you have no fucking idea what you're doing. You need to be shown what to do. You need to be given a framework of how to do it. You need to be told this is the wrong way and this is how I suggest you fix it. You need to be given guidance, just like a child, when a child is learning. When children are small, they're so inconsiderate. And it's not because they're not nice children. They're gorgeous children, but they are inconsiderate because that is how we are born into this world. We only care about ourselves. You as a parent have to teach that child to be considerate and empathetic and think about other people in their decisions don't hit your brother because it makes your brother sad and if your brother is sad does that make you happy or does that make you sad it makes me sad okay so you don't hit your brother you have to do the same things with young teams and new employees coming in because if you don't give them a framework of how to operate successfully within your business of course they're going to fail and either they're going to quit or you're going to fire them and then everyone's going to be like, oh my God, how can we, they, how do we end up hiring them? They didn't work out because you didn't give them a framework. Of course you had to fire them. They had no idea what they were doing. So you have to micromanage people to a degree when they first join your business, regardless of how experienced or skilled. Especially they are. with early in career talent. If you're bringing those into yeah. your organization, here's the thing. I ask candidates, one of my favorite questions is describe your ideal manager. And without fail, about 90 to 95% say something along the lines of, I can't stand a micromanager. And the way I look at it is it's funny because I'm actually doing a talk next week at Vanderbilt. And I have the four different bosses to look out for in the interview situation. And I put the control freak and I put a picture of me back in 2014, because as you're growing the business, to your point, I've always felt in my head that I'll give you the autonomy that you showed me you'd earn to a degree, but totally agree with you in that there has to be some level of preparing. I hate to use this terminology or this analogy, but preparing your soldiers to go to war, right? You can't just mm -hmm. say, you know what? We hired you as an adult. We're going to treat you like an adult. Come back and let us know. Here's when you completed Figure the it out. No, yeah, exactly. Here's a strategy. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. nobody wants to be micromanaged, but everybody wants to be well-prepared and empowered to be successful. And sometimes those things conflict, right? And then they go really hand in hand. Now, as I've grown the business and as I've had to step away, I don't have the luxury of micromanaging anymore. And so I really rely on my team to be able to go and provide that kind of hands-on support because we do hire a lot of early in career talent. And not only is it about getting your work done, I take the responsibility of helping them become young professionals in the norms of a company, showing up on time, what, how to prepare for a meeting, like how to write an email. Like some of these things, you'd assume that they're getting this at a university when they come and join our company. But I think when you assume, we all know what happens there. And so we take that responsibility and it can seem like a little bit of handholding, but at the end of the day, it allows our people to develop at a rate that they typically wouldn't have. And then that autonomy comes. Absolutely. And let's be honest, fresh out of uni, like, of course, you're not going to know etiquette of picking up the phone or writing an email or how you speak to people, right? Like, you haven't, you're used to speaking in the freaking frat house. It's just like a different, completely exactly. different ballgame. And I've learned that the hard way of expecting people to know these things, maybe because I did a lot of internships when I was at university. So when I went into the workforce at the age of 20, I already knew all this stuff because I'd been interning since I was 17. But we do have a responsibility as employers to give people frameworks of how to operate successfully in their career. Love it. Couldn't agree more. What a shock. What are you working on right now that you're really excited about? What am I working on? Everything. Everything okay. is like, you know that, have you ever seen Ice Age? You know that squirrel? That's me all the time. There's always a nut somewhere. <laughs> Just like I'm <laughs> excited by everything. Where am I most excited about? I am really excited about growing the agency side. Like we've just brought in a ton of new services. So we're doing PR, we're doing 
websites for people, we're doing talent management, inbox management, sales outreach, there's so many things going on there and it's so exciting and the team are obsessed and we've upsold so many clients into it as well and they're all really happy, so that's great. The other thing that's really exciting me is we're launching a product in, because we are reassuringly expensive, like that's be real. And a lot of people that we would like to help, and I think that's important to put in context of this. When I first started Clout, my purpose was to help people build their personal brands, right? And as I've grown in the business and as a leader and as a person and my personal, everything has changed for me over the last two years. It's not just growing the business. Like as a human being, I'm fundamentally different when I first started the business. I realized that actually my purpose isn't necessarily to help people grow their personal brands. It's to help people reach their potential. And a big part of that is confidence. And so a lot of the stuff that I talk about now online is less about personal branding and more about how can you be confident? Like, how can I motivate you to reach your potential? And that from the like least, you see my content, I was from the least fluffy place humanly possible. I'm like, my content is you're going to die. So grow the fuck up and post what you want to post. That's my kind of content. It's not like, so when you're like, I'm not like the fluffy, I'm not going to give you the handhold. I'm going to be like, so grow up, let's do this. But that's really where I feel like my purpose is now is like helping people grab the potential that they have with two hands and be like, I've got this. And so when we were talking about how we're going to grow the business, I was like, how can we scale? Like, how can we get our knowledge and this confidence that I have now, which by the way, I wasn't born with. This has taken like, 10 years to build if not the most growth in the last two how can I instill that in other people like how can I give them that like that gift because I think if you're confident you can do anything like anything and so we're building out this product which is going to be a personal branding tool we'll give you a a strategy like a free strategy and it will tell you what channels you should be posting on and how often and all this kind of stuff and then the back end of it is so do you want prompts to help you execute this and so people sign up for whatever it's 30 bucks a month or whatever and we will send them a prompt every single day for what they should be talking about and on what channel they should be talking about it on and i think that will remove so much of the anxiety that people have around building their personal brand because they're like i don't know what to say i don't know is that people gonna make fun of me is it even aligned with my strategy and then the confidence piece will come naturally because the more if someone says to you here is a recipe for how to build a cake you're going to be much more, sorry, to bake a cake, you're going to be much more successful in baking that cake than if someone just said, here's some flour, figure it out. And so I'm trying to give people the ingredients they need to make their personal brand and build their confidence online without having to pay us 45,000 pounds a year. That's really scalable to me. I can reach students with that. And I wish someone when I was 18 had given me that gift. When did the, when when does the product come out? In January, hopefully. It was meant to come out in September, but it's been pushed. (laughs) How exciting. I, listen, we're going way over on time, but I, I'm just curious. I want to ask you something. You do a lot of speaking engagements, right? And you talk a lot about confidence and anxiety. And I'm sure like anybody, sometimes you get butterflies still. Is there any techniques or anything you use to, to build that confidence in yourself so you go out there and you can perform at your highest level? Yeah, I think there's a few things. And I probably want to start this by saying I did a speaking gig. I do a lot. As you said, I do a lot of speaking stuff. I really enjoy it. I just love people. Like it's a thing. But I did a speaking gig a few weeks ago. And for the first time in probably about a year, I felt nervous walking on stage. And I was like, oh my God, why do I feel nervous? This is so weird. And I realized it's because I hadn't prepared properly. Like my, the thing that I was talking about was a new thing. It wasn't my normal stuff that I talk about. It was an entirely new concept. And if I'm honest, I hadn't spent enough time like knowing what I was going to say. So when I went on stage, I nailed it. It was great. But like through gritted teeth, if you like, I didn't feel comfortable. Whereas normally I feel comfortable and I'm whatever. And so to your point, like how do you get through the nerves and stuff? There were a few kind of tactics. One, be confident in what you're talking about. Know your shit. 
don't try and do a speaking engagement on something that you know a little about. Do a speaking engagement on something you are an expert in. Because when you're confident about what you're saying, it becomes easier to catch yourself if you miss the point that you were trying to make. Like case in point, we're speaking right now. I have flip-flopped all over the place with this conversation, but because I'm so confident what we're discussing, I've been able to loop back to the original point because I know what we're talking about. I'm confident in that. So that'll be the first thing is yeah. be really confident in whatever it is that you want to speak. If you're going to go on a podcast, make sure it's about the thing you're an expert in, not something that you yeah. know a little bit about. The second yeah. thing is the first kind of, this is the best trick someone ever told me. And this is from Harry Hugo, shout out Harry. He's a friend of mine and he runs the GOAT agency and the biggest influencer marketing agency. It's a billion dollar agency. Like he's rain man, it's ridiculous. But he told me when I did my first speaking gig, I said, oh, I've got any tips because he uses loads of speaking stuff, like huge stage stuff. And he was like, just the first two, three minutes of your presentation should always be the same. He said, just memorize that. Just memorize the first two to three minutes. The rest of it, don't worry. As long as you know what's coming and know what you don't want to say, don't overprepare because you got it. You know what you're talking about. Let the slides guide you, they'll find. But memorize the first one to two minutes. And what I didn't realize when he gave me that advice was like the value of that. Like every time I walk on stage now, I say the same thing for the first one to two minutes. So any residual nerves that I might have dissipate because I know what I'm going to say. And so then when the first slide comes up, I'm ready to rock and roll. Those butterflies have gone, the adrenaline's kicked in, the caffeine's hopefully already hit my bloodstream and we're ready to rock and roll. So know what you're talking about, memorize the first two minutes. And I think the third thing is don't be too afraid if you mess up because nine times out of 10, the audience doesn't even know. No. If you stumble over your words, they haven't even realized. Okay. So. I got to tell you, I think that is such fantastic advice. The, the second piece around memorizing the first two minutes, and I, I'm going to be a little vulnerable right now. When COVID, when we were working from home, I noticed when I started going back out and speaking in front of groups, to your point, I started having this anxiety at, at times. And I'm like, this has been my superpower for so long. How I mean, You really start to question yourself, right? And I think what I was doing was actually the opposite of what you said. I was over preparing and I was so scripted and making sure that I hit every point and every joke and everything that I had pre-written that I was getting lost in my own head. And so I totally agree with you, right? Just let the slides do the work, right? And talk about something that you have expertise in. And so I think that's great advice. I'm going to take advantage of that. I really appreciate you giving that. All right. One last thing. I want to ask you about a LinkedIn post that you did. It said, I just canceled all our employee benefits. They were a total waste of money. Unlimited holiday, gone. Unlimited learning, gone. Unlimited books from Amazon, gone. Because no one was using them. So instead, we introduced 30 days paid holiday, 100 pounds towards your commuting costs monthly, 40, 45 pounds towards your well-being monthly, and 10 pounds towards your home Wi-Fi bill monthly. So I'm interested in this, right, as an entrepreneur myself. What was that inflection moment where you realized that, and how has that change gone over with your team? So... I think the thing is, when you're a startup founder or any kind of leader of any kind, you tend to go to Google to find things out, right? So what do my employees want? What are the top 10 benefits that people want? Bonus, unlimited holiday. Da, da, da. And when we introduced these things, they were received really well. People were like, wow, like unlimited holiday, that's amazing. But what I realized very quickly was humans are goal orientated, right? So whether it be you're here from nine to five, <laughs> that's a goal, being nine to five, or whether it's you need to take 30 days holiday this year, unless there is a number associated to the thing, people don't use it. So we were actually finding, mm. although we were offering unlimited holiday, people were taking like 20 days, which is less than the legal requirement in the UK. So legally in the UK, we have to pay people, we, we have to pay leave for 21 days plus bank holidays, so it's 28 days a year. So that's the legal requirement. People were doing less than that. 
And I was like, guys, no one else are fucking tired all the time. Take a holiday. And I felt like I was like, I was that boss that wasn't nagging people to not go on holiday. I was nagging people every quarter. Have you booked your leave? Have you booked your leave? And to this day, like, I don't do it as much now because people look much better at it. But I'd be constantly preaching. If you're not taking a week, a quarter, you will burn out. That is a fact. That is a fact. The industry that we work in, the intensity of what we do, if you're not taking a week away from the office, notifications off, emails off, unplug, you will burn out. It will happen. And so we reviewed all the data. I did a bit of research with Gallup, which is like a kind of world-renowned HR insights company, and found that actually unlimited holidays often have the opposite impact to what their Mm -hmm. intention is, which is to give people more leave. It actually means people take less leave. So we introduced the number, which is 30 days. Great. Now everyone takes all their leave. Problem solved. Fabulous. Team loves it. The second thing was the unlimited learning and the limited books on paper sounds amazing, right? Yay, my team, my company will pay for all of this stuff for me. And this is amazing. Again, because it wasn't quantifiable, you get three books a month, you get one course a year, you get 500 pounds towards your personal development. People didn't use it because it was just there. It was like, it was just a thing that was there. It's like the, I don't know, there's always someone's a pair of sneakers or a pair of joggers or a hat in their closet that they love, but never wear. And that's because it's just there. There's no reason to wear it, right? It's the same thing. And so what we ended up doing was, and it's one of the things that we actually ask, not related to this, but related to the height of ecosystem of the business as a whole. In every single quarterly review, we say, what is one thing that we could do to make this your dream job? Um, and the feedback is invaluable because it's always, oh, I wish I could have a work phone. So we gave everyone a work phone. I wish I could have a blah, blah, blah. So I wish, whatever. I wish I could leave an hour early so I could get to that gym class. Cool. We brought in flexible gym working hours. Like, it's a constant iteration. As I was saying, the thing about being a startup is we can iterate. But the thing that kept coming up was, I want to be in the office more, but like, it's so expensive. Like the cost of living. I want to, I want to be able to do this thing, but like my Wi-Fi is just being a bitch, whatever. Or I would really love to just be able to get a massage, if I'm honest. Or I'd really love to just be able to like get some financial coaching to help me be able to get that mortgage that I, I want to get. And so I looked at that objectively and thought, how can we get the team more money first of all, so they can, the commute piece is taken care of. And also they want to be in the office because they're not worrying about the finances of it and their Wi-Fi situation. So that was an easy win for me, right? hundred pounds a month, commuting costs, 10 pounds a month towards their, their Wi-Fi. It's an expense. So it means it's an expense for me as a business too. And it means they're not paying tax on it, right? Because it's not going in their paycheck. It's an expense. So that's an easy win. Fine. The benefits, the sort of well-being piece was a little bit more complicated. How do we help people look after themselves better? And again, like a friend of mine runs a business was telling me about this platform. He and was like, oh, you put 50 quid a month into this platform. Like they can get things like HelloFresh, which is like a delivery service of healthy food, gym memberships, like life insurance. He was like, you literally just, they just give them the credit and then they pick the benefits that they want. And to me, that sounds really reasonable because some of our team want the life insurance because they have a family. Other people want a gym membership. Other people want ballet classes. Other people want pottery sets, like whatever it might be. But Heeker is exclusively based around well-being. So it could be financial well-being, mental well-being, physical well-being, but it's all about the well-being of the human or the employee. And so with my sort of hat on of look after your team, we'll look after everything else. We were like, that's a no-brainer. Let's get that. And actually, I think it costs us 50 quid a month because we have to pay a service charge to have access to the platform. But hands down, that is the best benefit that we've ever brought in. It gets used up every single month. The team love it. Like 
absolutely adore it. And the good thing about it is it rolls over for three months. So if you want to save for something like I'm getting a facial for the first time in forever because I've saved up three months of my Hika allowance so I can go and get a facial, which is something that many leaders never have the opportunity to do, especially as a mom and you're a parent too. Like you never get you time. So I'm like, oh, I can go and get a facial. This is amazing. Can you spell it? What is the name of it again? Hika, H-E-K-A. H-E-K-A. I got to tell you something. Whenever I hear unlimited this or unlimited PTO, I always look at it as a marketing tactic, right? To get people to come to your company. Oh, for sure. I, for sure. And I give you so much credit for actually looking at it and saying, even though people were excited about it, right? And they get to love to tell their friends and family that they have this unlimited this, you actually looked at the effectiveness of it because that's what it's supposed to be about. Are we giving the people what they want? So many good nuggets in there, asking people about what to make this their dream job. He got... Amazing stuff. You are obviously really good at what you do. You're an incredible leader and you've given us some really good advice here. I'm going to leave you with one last bonus question. Okay. You have obviously evolved over the course of your career. If you could give a piece of advice to somebody getting started in their career now, one little nugget that you didn't know maybe at the beginning of your career, what would it be? Oh God, one. How do I pick one? I always say to people, not every door is locked. Push. And I mean that like literally not every door is locked to push. If someone says no to like your, to you working for them or to a project you want to work on or some help that you've asked for, that doesn't mean no. It just means not right now or you've not asked the right person. Mm. If you want to do something and you feel passionately about it or you want to learn something, or you want to go and work somewhere, figure it out, push whatever door you need to push to make it happen i think people really grossly underestimate what can be achieved when you put your mind to something we all see these stories of people going i achieved like bill gates build this billion dollar business and elon musk did this and and yeah these are all really smart people but you're smart i'm smart most of the population is smart they're just people that pushed doors a little bit harder than you did so that would be my advice is don't let your fear of rejection or i don't know being told no stop you from reaching your potential because not every door is locked push <laughs> very good advice i love that if people want to find out more about you and cloud where should we send them well apparently i'm the only amelia sordell in the world so if you type mm. in amelia sordell in google everything comes up it's like the easiest thing to do and then cloud you can find us on pretty much every social channel it's k-l-o-w-t agency but TikTok is where I spend most of my time at the minute. I'm so addicted. I love it. I love it. that algorithm. They got something with that. I got to tell you, Mia, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you uh, giving us a little bit and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 